this life is is like an inch compared to a football field long of life and eternity. And that perspective is what makes the difference in everything. Because otherwise, you're going to be pursuing the best life you can on earth. Why would you not pursue the job that gives you the most status, the most pride, the most money, the best girl or boy or house? It's like comfort feels really good. But in light of eternity, it's meaningless. Welcome back to another episode of the No More Zero Days podcast. Today's episode is featuring Callie Turner-Neal. Callie is a filmmaker focused on telling stories that matter from global issues across the world. Today's episode profoundly inspired me from her sharing the depths of her heart and her willingness to insert herself into situations to tell the story of some of the most oppressed and broken people in our country and world today. So without further ado, episode 36 begins now. Tell me what led to you guys making the decision, because it was just no casual thing. Because for a lot of people listening today, they might say going to California is a big trip. But you guys decided to go to the Middle East. Talk to me about what led you guys to that decision. What were the goals of the trip? And we'll slowly start to unpack that. Jake and I both, before we got married, had a specific call in our hearts or really a burden for the Middle East and for unreached people groups groups that have never heard of Christianity um, or just people who are oppressed in general, either in a war situation or oppressed by governments or religion. And so when we got married, we knew that God had some kind of specific calling for us together in unity, especially with um, my skills as a filmmaker and his skills as a storyteller and marketer, um, to work with organizations who were doing good work out there and then eventually start our own organization to then move over there full time, do ministry, and then uh, tell stories of truth that would reach those unreached people. So when we got married, um, God kind of just unpacked that and started introducing us to new people, even though it was in the middle of COVID. We're meeting people on Zoom. One of my best friends, Erica Casseray, she um, is an Iranian, and she works in foreign policy in the White House. And now... Um, We've been praying and fasting every week for months just about what a project would look like together. And uh, the opportunity came up where she was actually hosting the Free Burma Rangers in D.C. And they had an amazing documentary about what was going on in the Middle East, what was happening in Burma. Um, And they go into these war zones and they defend the oppressed. They stay with the people who are under attack. They don't leave when guns start shooting or bombs start going off, they actually go towards that. So we really resonated with their organization and always just wanted to work with them. Um, And Erica was closely connected to them. So when she invited us out to DC to go to this showing, uh, we got to meet Dave and I filmed the event and then we turned it into a promo video. And Dave just came up to us afterwards and was like, it was such a God thing. He was like, I love you guys. He just said, I love you to me and Jake. He says that a lot. And, uh, And he said, you can go anywhere with us, whether that's Syria, Iraq, or Burma, you're welcome. And I was like, okay, well, when's Syria? Because we've always wanted to go to the Middle East. And that's been, Syria specifically, has been on our hearts for years. And he was like, well, we leave in 11 days. (laughs) And we were like, we live in Los Angeles. Like, we both have businesses we're running. We can't just leave. So we prayed about it. And the next day, it wasn't even 24 hours. And we got back to him. We were like, okay, here's our passport information if it's still a yes, we'll go. So we packed our car and we put everything um, at our friend's house and we left the country for four weeks. And we went to Erbil, Iraq for two weeks and then went into Syria for the last two weeks. Um, So that's how we got into it, which is just crazy, kind of like domino effect of God answering all these prayers and things just coming uh, way faster than we thought. We thought it would take years to prep, to be able to go do work over there. But the mission that the Free Burma Rangers were on in Syria, it was kind of like a reconnection trip with some of the locals and organizations that they've been working with. Um, So we went there to tell their story, make update videos, um, and it's mildly peaceful over there. If you're a Christian, it's never quite safe because there are some radical Islams that don't like Christians, don't like Westerners, don't like Americans. Um, so that was intense. But then there was a time where we were in a place called Inisa, and that means the eyes of Jesus, ironically. And um, while we were there, 
uh, in the morning, we're just having breakfast and we started hearing these bombs go off. And we were like, this can't be bombs. We haven't heard bombs this whole time. Like you just don't expect being in that situation to actually get caught in um, a situation like that. You just don't expect it. And so they were all around us and me and my friend Alex Park and like kind of the second cameraman on the trip went up to the roof of this hospital and we were looking everywhere trying to get them on, on camera because um, that's a story that we can tell. We can send it back to the United States government and say, hey, they're still under attack. Like we need to defend them. And that's a whole like political uh, landscape that I won't get into right now. But then one of them went off about 100 meters in front of us. And that was really scary. Um, and, but we thought there were no casualties. It was just kind of like another day being bombed by Turkey. They're just bullying them with, with mortars. But then we heard that there was one little boy who was on his donkey. And he was, he was a shepherd for all these sheep. He was leading them out in, this, in the middle of this field. This random mortar hit out there. And it, it knocked him off his donkey and blew the whole donkey to bits. So he was in the hospital. And uh, some of the guys from our team, our medics, like former Navy SEALs, Marines, Green Berets, and they took him in and they started working on him. And uh, he didn't make it. Um, they had tourniquets on both legs. And his mom came in uh, screaming. She passed out. And, uh, and then we ended up having to carry her out of the room. When she came to, she's just wailing. I've never seen grief like that. Um, and I just let my camera go and got on my knees and started praying. And it was a really intense moment, intense time. But the good that came out of that situation was having footage of that mother and having footage of that little boy named Hatam, because then we turned that video into, um, an update video, but it also went to Mike Pence. It went to Congress, went all over DC um, and we're saying, hey, this is what's still happening in Syria. A year after the Turkish invasion, they're still being bombed. Children are dying. Women are dying. Like innocent people every single day are dying. And these people can't live peacefully. So that was kind of our plea to the government. Um, and we made several more videos like that in our time in Syria. But that was the main mission was to go and get updates because you never really know unless you go there for yourself what's truly happening. That's a powerful story, and obviously I have like a million questions. But I think the first one that sticks out to me is what was it like? And maybe it was a little bit easier because you talked about having the connection um, in the White House, and maybe the Free Burma Rangers even had something here. But like, I would imagine that any of us listening can't just go buy a plane ticket to Syria and just show up like as if we're going to Paris or Rome or something else. So, so what was it like coming in and what was it like coming back? Oh gosh, it was so stressful going there. It was really easy to get into Erbil because that's technically Kurdistan and that's friendly with Americans, uh, friendly to Christianity. They're kind of a progressive culture. But um, when we went into Syria, I mean, it took us two weeks to get in and we're with the most connected people ever. <laughs> and I mean, the Free Burma Rangers have so much of um, a positive reputation with their government because they've stood with the Kurds for so long, you know, through thick and thin. They love them. They have like incredible favor. They're the only people um, who are allowed to go into Syria from Iraq with vehicles. But we had a large group with us. We had about eight vehicles in our convoy. And I think with COVID, it was just no one wanted us to go there because honestly, we're a liability. If we're not with the um, if we're not with the government and we're not with the military, then we could easily be killed and or taken. And, you know, they'd never see us again. And Americans just don't want to be liable for that. So it took about two weeks for us to get in. And in that time, we were debating on whether or not to go to Armenia because they were about to go into war and um, there was a great need there. So we were like, well, there's not an active war in Syria. We might just need to go to Armenia. So Jake and I prayed about that. Like, what does it look like for me to go on that recon trip and him to join me later? It was crazy. But no, you cannot just get a plane ticket and go to Syria. The process is, is difficult. And I don't know how much I can share about it, but basically you have to go with a nonprofit organization. Like I know Samaritan's Purse does work over there. And, um, yeah, that's all I can really say. <laughs>
Well, the part two to that question, and just being the filmmaker, me, I want to ask this question because sometimes I even get haggled if I want to fly with film gear to Atlanta from Nashville. Much less, you know, I can't imagine what it's like a you know an American showing up in this foreign country with all this film gear, and they're like, uh, "What's this?" So, what was it like being the filmmaker trying to you know travel overseas with all this gear? It's a really good question. Um, I brought about half the gear that you know, the very basics that I thought I would need. And then we had a second cameraman who who took a different flight separate from me. And he brought his camera gear, but he also brought like plates and armor and things like that. Because he was flying Turkish Airlines, that looks really suspicious to Turkey. So I carried his plates. We like swapped off gear to make it kind of look normal and not like, who's this American coming in as, uh, you know, joining some militia. So that's how we packed. And then, of course, you can't bring drones because what I didn't know is that they used to drop bombs from drones. So people are terrified of them. But when we do fly drones, you just have to be very specific about where you're going, get permission, make sure there's no people around because these people have lived through a lot. You don't want to scare them any more than they already are. Talk to me about really the importance that you see yourself as a filmmaker. You know, you talked a lot about the distribution of the footage and where it went and just the importance of whether you're in Syria, whether you're in America, wherever you are today, I feel like there's such a added bonus to the work that we do in the sense that there's a lot of, you know, hearsay or or people will make up or say that's hearsay or that's not true, but it's like, well, here's the video. And, and the only reason I bring that up is because I obviously knew very, very little about what you were really doing, but the stuff you've been posting on your story since then has been like pretty compelling of it's not just a piece of content that you just scroll by because it has this nice zoom transition and it's like, Oh, there's Cali like in the sunset. And you know, it's, it's, it's bleeding humans. It's people crying because their son's been killed or their friend or their family member. So what do you, what do you feel like has been kind of the biggest blessing to you of being able to use your skills in a way that the average person couldn't just go over there and do it because you actually have a, a true God-given gift. You've put in the time at film school. So what has that been like for you personally to feel like, okay, God, I'm offering up my skill set in a unique way that no one else can do? Honestly, that's what it means to be a light in the darkness. When you sit with somebody in their pain, in their suffering, and you're able to give them hope or show them love or take on that suffering as something that's a part of you now, and you kind of take that burden on yourself and you share that, that's what Christ does for us. And I don't see a better way to show someone Christ's love than to say, I have enough pain of my own, but I'm willing to take on some of yours so that you don't have to bear it. Or you know you're not alone. Or you know that there's still hope. So for me, I want to go to the darkest places on earth because I believe that's where God has called us to shine his light and to shine light through us. So for me, being able to go to Syria, be in a war zone where, you know, there's not just trafficking, there's um, human slaughtering, there's everything in a war zone. Any kind of worst atrocity that you could think of is happening when there's war. And a lot of times after natural disasters too, if, if buildings are wiped out and people are living on top of each other, they're homeless, they're, they're starving, they're in great need, you have similar situations. So um, as a filmmaker, those are the places I want to go to because I see that's where God has worked through me the most. And it's not even about filmmaking at the end of the day. At the end of the day, it's about being a servant of God. And one day I'll be a filmmaker. The next day I could be offering medical help. I already feel called to go into that field as well on a basic level. And then later down the road, it might be full-time ministry. It might be homeschooling my kids. But I think people get really wrapped up in like their identity associated with their career, associated with the skills that they have. And at the end of the day, you just have to ask yourself, um, do I want these accomplishments for myself and my own ego to feel good enough? Or do I want them because they're actually serving the kingdom? And that's been a huge question I've had to ask myself. Because if you study the Enneagram 9, I'm a 3 <laughs> and a 9. And I do a lot of things for that sense of accomplishment and that sense of achievement, feeling good enough. Um, but that's something that I know the Lord has spoken to me is don't do this for yourself. Do this because you're actually useful for the kingdom. 
how have you been able to, you know, you talked about some days you're holding a camera, other days you were giving basic medical care, you know, how have you been able to, and what can we really learn from you in the sense that I feel like a lot of people when they say, you know, you talk about going to the darkest places in the world for God, you know, just assume that you're um, just immediately walking up to someone and saying, it's quoting scripture, you're immediately saying, do you know Jesus? And I'm not saying that that's not it because I don't know the truth, but my curiosity on this is what can we all learn from you about showing God's love beyond just saying, quoting John three sixteen, beyond just saying, do you know Jesus? Are there ways that you have seen in your experience that people have responded to you in a way of what makes her different or why are you really here or that you've been able to share the gospel in a deeper way because you didn't just open up with, do you know Jesus or not? Yeah. Well, our greatest commandment is to love God and to love your neighbor. So then you have to ask yourself, well, what does it mean to love? Does it mean to just accept everyone and their flaws and unconditionally um, love them and be nice to them? No, <laughs> it means to love like Christ did, to take up your cross, deny yourself, and to sacrifice for others. I mean, to me, Love is defined through your actions, and a lot of times it is sacrificing what you want in order for what that person needs. When you're going to these places and you want to share God's love, the best thing you can do is to not, first of all, go up to them and ask them if they want Jesus, because most of the time they don't. (laughs) And if they've never heard his name before, then they don't know him. But they can get to know him through you and through your love for, for them that God has placed in your heart. And that's shown through service. You know, if you're with somebody who's in a war zone or just lost everything to a hurricane, the best thing you can do is to address their immediate needs, which is either um, medical or, you know, they need food, just going in, providing their basic needs, developing a relationship with them, and then in some way doing a crazy act of love. And that's what I love about Dave Eubank and the Free Burma Rangers is Everything they do, they say it's not for revenge against ISIS. It's not for our own glory as heroes. It's for love. It really is. At the end of the day, you know, who's going to stay by your side when it could mean dying? And I really hold on to Paul's words in Philippians saying to live as Christ and to die as gain. Yeah, it'd be a lot easier if we were just dead and we were with God. Honestly, it doesn't mean I want to die. But it means that if I'm living, there's a purpose for it. And I need to stick to that purpose. Otherwise, there's no point in me being here. Um, So I really hold on to those words. And I remember that if I'm not loving with a heart that's willing to die for what God calls me to do, um, then I'm not being obedient. That's amazing. Talk to me about, I know this is uh, an important thing for you and Jake here on the state side, and it's it's a global issue, but it's a lot bigger issue in the U.S. than people, I think, even realize, and they kind of just swipe past things on social. But talk to me about your passion for fighting human trafficking and how you got into that and kind of how you're helping to use your skill sets or your, your, your God-given passions to fight against that. So I, I first started doing filmmaking with my sister here in Nashville. And we launched this production company called Ariel Produced, and we were going and covering stories after natural disasters, specifically in the British Virgin Islands. And it was amazing. I got to interview people like Richard Branson and um, the premier of the country. We just met so many people through that, and it was a huge door opener. But then I I started studying, um, well, I just started watching documentaries, honestly, and that opened my eyes to a whole new world of things. I really think I was living for myself before that point that I started working on BVI Stronger um, and watching documentaries. And it just, it gave me like a secondhand experience of something that I couldn't forget. And I realized that the problems in the world were so much bigger than my problems. And it's that burden that I'm talking about that just sits on your heart and you're like, I have to do something about this burden because I feel so heavy. And So I just asked myself what, you know, I'm like 18 years old, 19 years old. I don't have a college degree, but I've I've got a little bit of experience in documentary filmmaking. How can I use this, God? And that's when he gave me the vision to go to L.A., go to film school um, and just dive into it full time. Try to work with counter trafficking organizations full time and and bless them with my skills and learn more about it in the process. 
so you talked about something I thought was really important just now and you know, that the guy was kind of tugging on your heart or that there were things tugging on your heart, but you were, I love that you actually did something about it. Cause I feel like there's so many for us that we're sitting at the stoplight in Nashville and wherever we are and we're seeing the homeless person and there's that tug, but we don't do anything about it. Or we, maybe we bring $5 next time, but in the grand scheme of things, we have so much more to offer to these different causes that tug at us, you know, and they're, and they're different things. That's just an example of one thing. But what do you think is the difference between people that do and don't do something about it? And from your experience now of responding to that tug and looking now, we're, wow, we're going across the world now. We're truly living out these passions that God's given you. What have you learned about that? And, and from the sense of what advice can you share with people that maybe are, are resonating with this and saying, wow, like I've never done anything, but I know there's A, B, and C areas that every time this is up, every time I see this on social, every time I see this on Netflix, every time I see this on in my world in real life, I have that tug. How can we, how can you help, you know, motivate them or not even motivate them, but help them step into that calling to respond to those things? Well, first of all, if you're a Christian, it's your responsibility. It, I mean, the word tells us to defend the oppressed and take up the case of the widow. You have to do something about that or else you're not living like Christ. What did Christ do? He had compassion on everyone. And he took time out of his insanely busy schedule and ministry to care for, you know, the insignificant. So first of all, it's a responsibility. But two, your life, if you're not responding to the pain of the world, you're living in a very uh, tight bubble. And that does not feel good. You know, when all you're worried about is your own problems, your own life, your own uh, work or like what's next, you're, you're never going to be satisfied. And I think that I've grown to know God the most in my life during the most painful times of my life, because I've just asked him, you know, I'm either pleading with God saying, I don't understand how you could allow these things to happen. Um, but then it always turns into, if I feel this pain and I feel this weight, I can't imagine what you feel. When you look at this person suffering and you see your daughter and you know her, I don't know her, but I know it's happening and that makes me upset. Um, so I've, I've understood the heart of God more as I've stepped into pain and I've stepped into things that are uncomfortable. And to me, that's the greatest gift and the greatest joy in life is feeling like you can do something about that um, and not ignoring it. The more you ignore things, the more you lean on comfort, the more weak and, um, and fragile you'll become. And honestly, it's just like a, like a slow path to death. It's amazing. So a lot of the things that you've talked about, a have been amazing. And like, I'm just sitting here like, wow, this is just such a great conversation. But a lot of these things feel like on the outside, someone listening to this might say, wow, these are really big issues. Human trafficking, really big issue. Um, you know, uh, a sect of people in the Middle East, that's a really big issue that feels really far apart from where I am sitting in Nashville, and I can't really do anything about that. And the reason I bring this up, because I feel like there's been some things in America in 2020 and still in 2021 that feels like really big issues, be it racism, be it um, all the political things going on, be it a multitude of things. And I feel like a lot of people are like, I'm just going to check out. Like, this is a bigger issue than me. And not saying that that's not true, because it, it really, these are some huge issues that are going to take hundreds of millions of people rallying around a central cause or actions to really ultimately end them. But what have you learned, or, or what would you say to people, rather, because you're stepping in and you truly are making an impact on a small scale against these really big issues. So what is your response to, to you feel like? I just feel like I know I have friends that I'm not here to name them or expose them. And there have even been times, to be honest, this year where I felt like, man, these are really big issues. And I don't know if I should speak out about this. I don't know if I should post anything about this. I don't even know what I can do about this. Like, what what's your kind of two cents on how you've been able to take or be a part of these really big issues, but yet still move forward and feel empowered of, I can make a difference? If you don't know what to do because things feel overwhelming just pray that God would break your heart for what breaks his. And I think that through that prayer, certain things start to become more important than others. 
and you realize what you're willing to devote yourself towards and what you're not. I'm willing to devote myself towards certain causes and other ones. I'm not. doesn't mean I don't care about them, but I know my capacity, and I know that I'm not going to be completely immersed in it to, one, be able to offer knowledge and wisdom around the subject and lead others in it, or two, really do a good job addressing it. Especially with filmmaking, it's like, I could just make random films about whatever because it's such a useful tool. Um, but then you just t- start taking the wrong opportunities and you're really not going to get anywhere with what you've set out to do. So to me, pray that prayer and ask God to make things more important in order of what he thinks you should be doing in your life. How to not check out when things start feeling really overwhelming. I guess to me, that's never really been scary to me. I'm kind of like, I know the world is <laughs> terrible and I just keep learning more and more about how how much evil is in it. But then you also have to weigh that against God's will for the world and his original intention and say, you know, I get to be part of God's redeeming the earth. When I see that these children are living horrible lives and are being uh, raped and beaten and just abused. They know nothing else. How am I supposed to address that? And it's like, well, do what the word says and go love them. Go sacrifice your time, your energy, your resources, your skills. Build the right skill set that you need. Maybe you need to go to medical school. Maybe you want to go to film school and tell stories. Or you want to be a lawyer and you want to be a criminal, def- like, you want to work against that or usher in new policies. I think some people, they pick the career that they want and then they figure out how God can fit inside of that. But it's not, it's the complete other way around. You know, you you seek the kingdom first and then he will tell you what to do. And then after that, you go get those skills and the training that you need. Um, And that is your North Star. That's the path that you're on. And if anything else takes you off of it and you try to pick your career or your path and then see how God fits in it, it's just not going to work. You're always going to be finding yourself um, struggling to to find a purpose in that. I feel like a lot of us probably subconsciously, maybe even you know consciously, have felt pressure to do something more with our lives, but yet always come back to, I got to have bills to pay student loans. I got to have money to have this, quote, life that I feel like I'm supposed to have. And again, it can be a subconscious thing of like, I got to get married. I got to have a big house. I got to have kids. I'm going to go work nine to five Monday through Friday. And that's what life is to me as uh, a male or female in America. And I just wonder what can we talk about or what can we say to people that are, and again, I know this feels like a same question, but you just brought it up so well because I feel like so many people that I know, like, man, I, I wish I could be a X, Y, Z, but I know it doesn't pay well. And I, and I know for you probably, uh, you're not raking in the millions, but you've went to this amazing film school in LA, prestigious, you could be making movies, you could be, you know, doing stuff for social media people, for brands and and making a, a nice fat paycheck. And I'm not, again, I'm not assuming that you're, you're not, um, but I would just imagine that there's probably a pretty big financial sacrifice that you are consciously choosing to make to go out and do some of these projects. And I would probably even guess that you're having to even raise money sometimes to do some of these things, or you're willing to work with organizations for little to no money because you care so much about that cause. So as a young 20 something who recently got married, what can you share about your experience or your story of you guys making this decision to choose impact over money? This life is short. This life is fragile and we are weak little humans who don't have control of anything. Your life could end tomorrow. Why are you working in a job that kills your soul that isn't contributing to the kingdom at all? And it doesn't mean you need to live every day like it's your last, but you do need to have eternity in mind and know that this life is is like an inch compared to a football field long of life and eternity. And that perspective is what makes the difference in everything because otherwise you're going to be pursuing the best life you can on earth why would you not pursue the job that gives you the most status the most uh, pride the most money um, the best girl or boy or house it's like 
Comfort feels really good, but in light of eternity, it's meaningless. So that perspective changes everything. I think as a Christian, you find a lot of people who don't get that. And it's really frustrating because it's like, if it's not you who goes out into the world, into these dark places and shares God's light, who is? If it's not the Christians, who is? That's literally our entire calling. It's what Jesus lived his life to show us. And um, yeah, so that's frustrating. But really, it's, it's also the way that we don't worry about money. We don't worry about opportunities or really even God providing is the scripture. Pursue the kingdom first and all of these things will be added unto you. And God has shown that in a million different ways. I mean, I'm not going to say we don't worry about anything, but with money, he takes care of that. With opportunities, always takes care of that. With connections, takes care of that. And it's not like we have this unbelievable favor. It's just, I think, having eternity in mind, making choices based off of that and saying, um, in everything that we do, we're going to pursue the kingdom first and put that at the top of everything. And then God just brings the rest. You don't have to worry about anything. Talk to me about, so I know that both you and your sister are, you talked about Ariel and you talked about a little bit about BVI. And I know you guys have done a lot of natural disasters. I'm just curious because both of you guys are sisters, obviously, but you're, you have a few years apart. Were you guys as, as children, was there a big philanthropical like emphasis on y'all's lives or has this been something that you guys have individually taken on as, you know, your own woman? You know, I don't think so. We didn't grow up that way, but Brittany has always been a pioneer. She's nine years older than me. She's number two. I'm number six in the family. Um, My mom was a school teacher. She stayed at home and raised all of us and homeschooled us until high school. Um, And she's an artist and my dad owns his own business. He's a mechanical engineer. So nothing really like, I mean, we were raised in a Christian home and my mom always raised us to be bold in our faith and kind of be like trendsetters instead of followers. So I think that gave us the confidence at a young age to go and do things differently. But Brittany has always had a heart for missions. She's always been uh, this bold entrepreneurial woman who's like not afraid to to push herself to the, the limits. And um, she basically raised me because when you have six kids, it's kind of like the oldest raises some of the younger ones. And Brittany and I were just like attached at the hip my whole life. So... When I was 13 and I was going into high school, she started Ariel and it's a real estate development company was her first company. And I would, I would, uh, work with her every summer. We would just intern together and I would learn real estate, learn investing, try to be like more financially literate. And I mean, it was just amazing that she did that for me. And she took the time out of, you know, her days. She would, she would dress me up in all of her, her business clothes at 13 years old and take me into bank meetings and just like pour everything that she had into me. Um, so I kind of adopted a lot of her like philosophies around business and um, mission work and things like that, even though I had never been on a mission trip, but she'd been to Africa and done all of these things. Um, so I really associated myself with this like social entrepreneurial mindset. And I, I went to business school to do that. But then after I dropped out of school and I worked with her full time, that's when God gave me the vision, you know, Pursue the kingdom first, and then all these things will be added to you. You don't have to have a successful business. You don't have to have a million dollars and then get started. If God wants it to happen, he's going to make a way. And that's the biggest thing I've learned from being involved with philanthropy or social entrepreneurship. It still is effective, and it's an incredible model, but it's not necessarily what we do anymore. Has there ever been the temptation of this mindset of, okay, I just went into a war zone. Uh, Bombs got dropped on us, you know, 100 meters away from us. I think I've done enough. I did enough for the kingdom. Like, has there ever been that temptation to, like, take the foot off the gas? And if so, how have you struggled or how have you gotten through that? Or what can we learn from you about just continuing to move forward and dreaming bigger? Because, again, I don't know anybody else that's 20-something and is willing to go to the Middle East and hold a camera and do all these things. And so I just know for me, I've done nothing like that. And so I'm not comparing myself to you, but there have been times where I have taken a step of faith or made a big sacrifice for something. I know I feel like God called me to, 
and there's that humanness in me that's tugging. It's like, okay, you've done enough. Or like, nobody else is weird in doing that. Like, you just need to stop. So talk to me a little bit about that. (laughs) It's such an interesting way to put it. I think um, when I was in high school, I felt that way. It was like, oh, I'm really good at this. And I did this good thing, patting myself on the back. But then the more I feel like I stepped into real truth and um, and real pain and real world problems, like real evil versus good, um, it's it's put more of a burden on my heart to do more. So it's not like I've, I've reached this limit. Maybe I've checked Siri off my list because I've always felt called to go there, but I feel called to go back a hundred times more or even potentially live there. Like there's no cap to it. And there's this really awesome analogy that uh, Francis Chan makes. I don't know if you listen to Francis Chan, but he's like, everybody thinks that when you're working in ministry, the prime time of your life is like your 20s because you've got all this energy. And then, you know, you get 30s, 40s, you have a family and you slow down and then you get into your 60s and you just retire. Like you're good. You've kind of just, you've lived your life. You've done your work. You've run the race. He's like, but no, it's the complete opposite. Like we're actually in a race until the end. And God tells us to run this race faithfully. So when you're in your 20s, I think about it as like miles per hour. You're, you're going 20 miles an hour. You only know so much. You only have so much experience. You're, you're still pretty immature. And then so you can only go like 25 miles an hour. But then when you're in your 30s, you go 30 miles an hour, 50, 50 miles an hour, 70. You're going 70 miles an hour. You're going full speed. You don't take a break. You don't let your foot off the gas. It's like you're um, so much more established. You have a family. You probably have disciples who are making other disciples. And I just think that that's the best analogy for our life is to never let off the gas because it's not the same thing as like being burnt out and having to like have a healthy pace about your life. I mean, going full force in, in the kingdom is what we're supposed to be doing every day of our life. Talk to me about the blessing or the process of getting married to someone who has this equal passion to be a part of, you know, serving the kingdom or being a part of what you're doing. Because I would imagine, I don't wish this voodoo on anyone, but like it would not go well if one person wants to to be what we call normal and another person wants to go into a war zone and do things. So A, how did you guys meet? B, did you know this was kind of the type of life you wanted to live prior to getting married or being serious in a dating relationship? Or has this always been kind of the thing that's brought you guys together? And C, just talk about just being married and, and living this life full throttle. Being married to somebody who has the same vision and same heart is such a gift. And I'll brag about it because it's rare. Like I, and it's such a God thing. It wasn't, it was not me and it was not Jake. That was, it was like divine intervention in my life for God to bring Jake and me into his, because we were very different when we first met. I was honestly, I called myself a Christian my whole life. But then I had this time in my spiritual journey where I just 180'd. And I went into this like totally open-minded spiritual time where I was basically new age and I didn't know it. I just thought that I was pursuing truth on another level, which is what everybody thinks in new age. And um, yeah, and I was just not grounded. I was not grounded in the word. Um, and then I, I met Jake and right before I had met him, I really was like, I got to start over. God, like, I'm so off the right path. I don't even know if Jesus is the son of God. But if you are and you have power of my life, just turn it upside down. You know, I give it back to you for real this time. And then I met Jake and Jake had such a strong confidence in his faith and he was living it out. And before I even knew him, it was so weird. I just saw something in him that drew me to him. And before I'd even have a conversation with him, I was like, he knows God and he is doing something about it. And I would go home and ask myself, what would Jake do about this? Jake Neal, this guy I don't even know because he's just such a good person. So I wanted what he had. I wanted that confidence and that peace. Um, And over time, he just answered the millions of questions that I had and we we're still on very different pages. Um, 
but something just kept drawing us to each other. And I think that it was honestly the Holy Spirit saying, Callie's good for you and Jake's good for you, Callie. And um, over time, we connected over uh, this, you know, idea that we were going to sacrifice our lives for the kingdom if it came to that. And having the same heart in that, we could plan things like an organ, having an organization, um, making disciples, working in ministry overseas. And so God's just worked in both of our hearts a lot over the last few years to get us on the same page. But yeah, ultimately, like we had the same vision in terms of doing ministry, going to those places, going to the darkest places and being a light. And that has been such a game changer because I know people who are in relationships where their husband doesn't want to go to those places, but they have this burning desire in their heart. And they're like, God, what do I do with this? And honestly, it's the other person acting in fear. Because if you don't have an initial vision or heart for going overseas and doing mission work, but you have a heart for God, I think eventually he will lead you there or he'll lead you somewhere in the States, whatever. He's going to call you to things that challenge you. And he's going to call you to things that bring him glory, which is the stark difference of light and darkness. Um, So yeah, for people who are in relationships like that, I would just tell them to pray that God would unify them in their marriage and unify their vision. And then it wouldn't be like his wife's vision or her husband's vision, but it would be God's vision and they would submit to that. I have recently like heard kind of this like quote that really kind of has shaped me or really maybe kind of stop and think about this in my own life and look back. And I want to ask you this question and, and again, not putting words in your mouth, but it's kind of this idea that kind of the bigger we dream, the bigger the opportunity for us to be let down, be that in people, be that, you know, even in, in faith, you know, I think there's times I've looked back at my life where I'm like, you know, God, I really need something big here to, to show me a new side of you because I'm, I'm struggling with this because a pastor got outed because I, you know, I was listening to a pastor that now he had an affair and I don't know if I can trust this. And, and really what it comes down to, obviously with the faith thing is just like not putting our faith in people because they're always going to let us down. And even, you know, the, the biggest blessing of pastors of having their, you know, their wisdom, but still, it's like we have to pursue God. But so my, my curiosity is just around this idea of what have you learned about uh, so much of what you do is, you know, you talk about connections of even getting to Syria with someone in the White House of, of David Free Burma Rangers. So how are, are you guys, or how are you personally able to, and again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, just curious on your perspective, because this has been something that's rattling around my brain constantly of how are you able to de- depend on and work with other people, but yet keep yourself centered on, you know, God's truth and pursuing him and not, letting it, you know, your faith be so proxied to these amazing people that you're working with and, and not be leaving yourself vulnerable to, to being better with God. Cause I think the devil uses the human side in all of us to a crave connections with others, but also to trip us up and, and trip other people up, which always causes this domino effect. Yeah, totally. I think that first of all, like you said, don't get caught up in um, the person and make them as important as the issue. Dave Eubank is not as important as being in ministry in the Middle East. Um, and I've had other people in my life that I really look up to that I, I probably obsessed over their vision for their organization a little bit. And I see that now, but at the time I didn't and was totally heartbroken when I found out that they cheated on their wife and they're still in ministry. I don't know what kind of redemption God has done in their life. It's not up to me, but totally changed my perspective on them. I wanted nothing to do with their organization. And I flew across the world to go meet them and found out later. Again, you just have to say like, this is for the kingdom. And these people are mere mortals (laughs) and they're humans and they're going to sin and they're going to mess up. Um, But we're all on the same team here. You know, we all have the same vision. It's not to accomplish something for this person in their organization. It's to accomplish God's will. And if you mess up along the way, I'm not going to completely lose my vision and my passion and my purpose. That's up to you. But people do that all the time with preachers and Christianity. And that's all I can say is people are going to let you down. They're going to mess up. I'm going to mess up. I'm going to let you down one day. And I hope that you forgive me but that doesn't change anything about what God's put on your heart. Talk to me about film school. Was it 
underwhelming to what you expected? Was it super helpful? Was it somewhere in between? What was your experience like in film school? This is so good to talk about because so many people are like, should I go to film school? Should I not go to film school? And I was one of those people. I was like, I was praying about it, but I was kind of like, God, just tell me not to go because I don't want to go. I was like, I don't need it. I've already been doing documentaries. I've worked with Richard Branson. I've done all these people. Like I was just getting on my high horse saying that I don't need it. But I think that when God called me to go to film school, it was so much more than film school. It was my time in LA. It was my time meeting this amazing community that he brought me. It was my time with my sister there. Um, And so not everything's about you, you know? If you're deciding to go to film school or really do anything big in life, like just ask God, how can I be there to serve more than just myself, first of all? And then, you know, if you actually are deciding whether or not to go to film school, I asked a lot of people that I respected in the industry and I said, did you go to film school? Did you go to film school? And I really made the decision at an international justice mission conference in Frisco, Texas. And I was following these directors who were making films for IJM. And those were the kind of films I wanted to make. So I asked them, hey, in order to get to where you are now, did you have to go to film school, do the whole shebang? And they lived in LA at the time and they were like, no, you don't need to go to film school. Everyone said no, but all of them had gone to film school. And I was like, well, you can't tell me that, no, I didn't need it when you went to film school, because you never know if you met that one person or just, you know, you devoted your time to a certain uh, geographical, geographical location that put you in the same sphere as people who led you to this connection. It's like there's so many different reasons why uh, film school is a good idea. And for me personally, I could still do what I'm doing without film school. But I love that experience because uh, one, it gave me confidence Two, it taught me how to speak the language. So when I do work on bigger film sets and I don't just do kind of like this run and gun guerrilla style shooting that I do um, and I work with a whole team, I can direct them better. I know how to work with actors. Um, And then one of the biggest things was script writing for me. I'd never been taught how to write a script, like a proper script or even how to like break one down. So it was worth it to me. Yeah, I loved the whole Hollywood film school thing. Emma actually went to the same school as me, so she's agreeing. Um, And it was worth it, but it's also really expensive. So you just have to weigh the odds. You know, if you want the experience and you're willing to go there and make it worth it by building your portfolio, introducing yourself to as many people as possible, it'll probably be worth it. If you go there and you just treat it like another high school class and you just go to the classes, it's not worth it because you're going to get nothing from it. That's how film school is. What do you feel like is like a great camera for people to start out with kind of doing if they want to shift from like, I don't want to just do like, you know, transitions and lights and sounds and Instagram, but I want to really tell a story. So like what what camera talk can you share with people? You need so much less than you probably think you do. It's insane. My go to camera kit fits in that Pelican fits in a carry on size Pelican. It's a. Sony a7R 3 DSLR, I just bring one camera, people, not five, and then you have your basic mic. You've got an onboard mic um, with a dead cat or dead squirrel on it if you're running around outside. Then you have your nice microphone, which is your Sennheiser Lavalier, and then you have a tripod or a monopod, whatever you can run with and set up quickly. Because that's what I've realized is the most important thing is not to have the best camera equipment or have everything you could ever possibly need. It's what can you fit in a backpack and, you know, run and go get. And so I, I carry like max two lenses and that's it. And I've been able to do all my work with that amount of gear. If I'm in a studio and I have a little bit more wiggle room, I'll, I'll bring some lights, some reflectors just to make it look better and maybe a second angle camera. But it's so simple. Like you really don't need to be the best uh, cinematographer. You just need to learn how to tell a story. And the best way to learn how to tell a story is to edit. So just start taking interviews, start going out and shooting things, figuring out how to visually tell a story. Because I've edited thousands of hours of footage and it has made me such a better director and such a better cameraman because I just know what I need. And I can go out and and tell a story in probably 10 shots where some people need to take 200 and they spent all this time going through it. It's just learn how to tell a story, practice that, 
make your camera gear simple and and lightweight and don't buy the expensive stuff stuff because it makes you feel like a better filmmaker don't buy into that just figure out what works for you um what's easy and convenient and focus on the story what do you feel like is the biggest change in yourself as a filmmaker when you look at your portfolio or body of work before film school and then what has been you feel like the biggest change kind of being on the other side of that prepping (laughs) um so much of my early work was my very first video i ever did like shot directed edited um was a full-length documentary and i had no idea what i was doing and then after that we did a 10 episode series and it's me one single person like conducting interviews filming and editing hundreds of hours of footage in a disaster zone it was insanely um complicated and i didn't know how to work a camera i didn't even know how to work a microphone like it was just crazy but you learn very quickly (laughs) um So now the biggest difference is I know how to put in the time to prepare for things and make things really organized. And that just gives you this like clear head the day of when you're shooting, you know your stuff, you come prepared and confident and you get everything you need so you don't have to stress about it later. And that's honestly been the key to just accomplishing so much more. Be it that you're super now experienced in filming things in disaster zones, in war zones, and things that aren't, you know, under a roof with, you know, sources of electricity right here to plug in when things go bad or you forget to charge your batteries and having all this saving grace. What is what have you really learned about handling kind of your equipment or your kit in these, you know, environments that are like if you drop something, they're not coming back or or, or how you know, how have you I'm just curious as someone else that, you know, holds a camera that, you know, I recently went out to like the sand dunes this year in California. And it was like a radical experience, like trying to not get things in my fan, you know, get sand in there to get sand in lenses. There's still probably some sand sitting in a couple of my Canon cameras. Like what has that taught you about or what kind of tips and tricks could you share, if any, of operating camera equipment in these just crazy environments? It's so funny that you're mentioning the sand because I have mud on my camera that's been there for like two years and I still haven't cleaned it off just because I'm like, it's going to go through so much worse. And I love the durability of my equipment. I mean, everything I pick is like, I don't care if it's the best, but is it gonna last if something like that happens? If my hard drive gets run over, is it gonna lose my entire life? So I only buy SSDs. And um, with the rest of my gear, just bring a lot of batteries. Don't invest in those cheap batteries that die after like 30 minutes. Buy the nicest batteries you can find. Because if you only have one, which has happened to me, and I'm sitting on 10% and I have to film for three hours, it better last. (laughs) And yeah, buy nice stuff that's going to last you a long time, that's going to save your butt when you're in that situation because there's nothing worse than being all the way out there in the desert and not having what you need. And nothing looks more unprofessional too. What's kind of people's reaction overseas, and this is more of a personal question, but it relates to everything we're talking about, to what are you going to do with your work like I don't know are people in Syria on social media platforms do they think about social media in the way that probably all of us do is like this holy grail of like anybody could see you know my work or do they view social media as kind of this petty thing so I'm just curious like how like are people bought into what you're doing in the sense that I don't want to relate too much here because I'm curious it's very different but like If you were to go up to someone today in America or in Nashville, Tennessee and say like, hey, I'm going to film you doing this thing. And look, I have X amount of thousands of followers. People would probably be like, yeah, it's kind of weird. I don't know you, but like, yeah, I want to be famous or like it could go to someone versus like if you went over there, they'd be like, or maybe they're not. They'd be like, what? Like, what are you doing? Like, what's the point of this? Where is this? Who's going to see this? You know, I'm just curious of what's their attitude or willingness to buy into what you're doing, knowing that you know, people in America are like, okay, I'm a sacrifice. I'm gonna stay up late. I'm going to like go out of my way. I'm going to rewalk up this hill for you. Cause I know the importance of where this is going to go because of the organization you're with, the amount of followers you have, like people in America just kind of like, I don't want to say get it. Cause it's not the right thing, but that's just where we are as a society of putting like social on this like huge Holy grail. I think it depends where you are. Some people are really weirded out by it. Some people are used to it or they think you're a reporter Um, Some of the areas that we went to in Syria, 
I don't think they've even seen the camera before. And so it was really fun taking pictures of the kids. They all want their picture taken. And the adults are really shy. But when I do take a photo, I make sure to show it to them. That way they're not like, oh, they're exploiting me in some way. Or they're going to use my picture to raise money from my pathetic situation. It's like you never want to make people feel like you're using them. Um, And so if it's ever possible, I give them the photo or I show it to them immediately. And with the kids, I, I let them take pictures of me and like interact with them. Um, But most of the time, if we're going to conduct an interview or something like that, we have a translator and we let them know, hey, this is for a video that's going to get you help. Because we're not making videos for any other reason than to share their story, let the rest of the world know, and then somehow bridge the gap between the need and the help and those resources. So we just let them know like, hey, this isn't a video for our Facebook to let everybody know that we're out here in Syria, it's actually going to go to the U.S. government, and the things that you say are powerful and meaningful and important. This by far has been one of my favorite episodes because you just you carry such a unique story with you, a unique passion for things, and I always respect and admire anybody that's willing to put skin in the game, if you will, because you know we all live in this world where we're all virtue signaling and saying things, but very few of us are actually living out those things and are continuing to choose, you know, selfish things. And those are, and this is coming from a guy who I have to look at myself in the mirror every day and rid myself of what are those things I'm telling friends to do, or what are those things I'm posting about, but yet I'm not willing to, to step out in faith and step out in sacrifice. So I really expect, respect you, admire you, and super excited to see where you and Jake are going to go. But Thank you. Thanks um, for having me. Yeah. So the last question, as I mentioned, every person always gets it. Um, and if you've continued to listen to this show, guys, I'm sorry that you always have to hear me breaking down, but I'm just fully believing and expecting that there are always new listeners coming in every episode. So as you know, you're on the No More Zero Days podcast. A zero day is where you get nothing done towards accomplishing your goal or dream, be it you want to go overseas and... Um, make inspiring films like Cali, be it that you want to help uh, human trafficking, be it that you're just believing for uh, a significant other this year, you're trying to lose weight, whatever that goal is, a zero day is where you're getting nothing done towards that. And I really realized through my own failure in this that I was living in either this zero or 100 mentality where today was either perfect and I was on, you know, got up at five and worked out and stayed on my diet and uh, read scripture and, you know, listened to a Gary Vee talk and it was just amazing. Or it was this zero day where I went to Taco Bell twice, I slept in, I didn't take a shower, I didn't work out and watch YouTube all day. And I fully believe that there's so much for us to learn if we can live, learn to live somewhere in between Because if we do a 5 today, a 15, a 50, a 99, we'll look back over the course of weeks, months, and years and see, wow, we're actually moving the ball forward. And those little wins kind of become contagious as we build those habits into our lives. So all that to say, what advice, be it a story, be it from a filmmaker's perspective, be it from a faith perspective, be it from all these perspectives, however long or little you want to go, what advice would you give to someone that's stuck in that zero-day mentality, Callie? and is believing for this thing or has this big goal for their life, but it just feels insurmountable and they're just stuck in, in not pursuing it because they think it's too big of an issue or it's too far away on the other side of the world or it's something that they don't deserve. What advice would you give to them? Well, this is actually something that Jake and I are leading people through in our Bible study and their friends, whoever wants to be part of us. We're doing like a four-week series on how to identify your purpose, how to define fulfillment and being fulfilled within God's calling for your life, and then how to practically get there. Because a lot of Christians, they have this idea of their calling or they're trying to fit it inside this life that they've already chosen for themselves and it's not working out. But most of the time they just don't have good habits or they don't have consistent habits or they're afraid to set goals because they don't want to get in the way of God's calling for their life. And So this thing that we're setting up for people is specifically for Christians to set goals based on God's word and then reverse engineer those goals from five years away to today and habits that I need to start, habits that I need to stop. Um, So a little bit about that that I can share to answer your question is uh, the best thing you can do is is to define 
where do you want your life to be in five or 10 years? If that's to have kids and have a family, then how are you doing something today to get there? And if you're not going to do something today, tomorrow, and the next day, you're just not going to get there. If you have three zero days in a row, that's just how it is. You truly don't want that goal enough. But if you're truly motivated and you figured out in five years, I need to be here. So that means next year I need to be doing this. In the next 90 days, I'm going to establish these daily habits um, that can get me in a consistent growth cycle. Then I don't always have to have a hundred day and I'm never going to have a zero day. And then there's going to be times where you struggle with that. And, you know, maybe you have an off day, but that's why you have a community of people to encourage you. You can share those goals with them. You can hold each other accountable. And then you always have God to say, like, God, is this the right goal? Is this something that I should be in? How can I grow stronger in you and your words so I can be consistent and disciplined in that?